This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. On this episode of Upfront, Belgium's King Philippe pays a visit to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, a historic trip that many said was an opportunity for reconciliation between the Congo and its former colonial master. Leopold's private property was the world's only privately owned colony. He called it the uh, Congo Free State. It was not free. It was based on slave labor, essentially. And during the 23 years he owned it, Leopold uh, made a profit from it, estimated at well over a billion in today's American dollars. That is Adam Hochschild, author of King Leopold's Ghosts, a classic best-selling book on King Leopold's rule over the Congo. Nigerian university students find ways to stay busy and engaged during their lecturer's strike. For me, I've realized that I should not depend on general institutions to be capable. But as always, let's start the show by listening to your opinions on our Upfront on the Streets of Africa segment. Girls are good in science, so we just need to change that mindset of boys being the best. The, the doctors who are female should be role model and they should be informing the other girls who are in schools that science is good for them and they can do well. Uh, what should be done is to, as in done to encourage girls to take science subjects, I think, uh, first of all, begins at home. Uh, parents should be educated. They should be taught how, you know, to in- involve the girls and, let me say generally, the children, to teach them some things at home. Sometimes they feel, they fear the science subjects. Now, the thing is like this, you know, we girls actually, we, we tend sometimes to branch away from the science subjects. We need to try to look at the nurses and, and, and the doctors we have around there. Majority are men. So what I want to say, and maybe what can encourage them to do sciences, are the teachers themselves at school. Upfront show, upfront show, presented by Jackson. Yeah, yeah, oh, oh, oh. Well, it's blessed by Rock tuning into the upfront show. Well, informative for the youths, you know. Rastafari. In early June of this year, Belgium's King Philippe visited the Democratic Republic of the Congo. A historic trip that many say was an opportunity for reconciliation between Congo and its former colonial master. During his visit, King Philippe presented a repatriated ceremonial mask that was taken during his country's rule over the Congo. Philippe called the gesture the symbolic beginning of a renewed relationship between the countries. He also expressed what he called his deepest regrets but he stopped short of offering a formal apology for what many scholars say was a brutal period of exploitation between 1880 and 1920, in which an estimated 10 million Congolese people were killed. Professor Adam Hochschild is the author of the best-selling book King Leopold's Ghost, a story of greed, terror, and heroism in colonial Africa. I reached him in California to talk about the significance of King Philip's visit to the DRC. Based on your research or your understanding of this person, uh, King Philip, what what relation is he to King Leopold and and how much of his uh, current wealth can be traced to Congo and its history of uh, violent exploitation by King Leopold? 
Uh, he's not a direct descendant of King Leopold, but he is, I believe, the great, great, great nephew of King Leopold. So he's part of the, the family. Okay. Um, and yes, the Belgian royal family, like uh, several of the royal families of Europe, has a lot of wealth. Its origins are in Belgium's exploitation of the Congo. Uh, Leopold, during the time that he owned what today is the Democratic Republic of Congo, it was then before it became the Belgian Congo, it was for 23 years Leopold's private property. It was the world's only privately owned colony. He called it the uh, Congo Free State. It was not free. It was based on slave labor, essentially. And during the 23 years he owned it, Leopold uh, made a profit from it, estimated at well over a billion in today's American dollars. And of course, money made well over a century ago, you know, invested in many things since then has continued to grow, and some of it has passed down into the Belgian royal family. Exactly how much we don't know, because the, the finances of the royal family are somewhat opaque, and of course they have a foundation which supports many good things, but yes, their, their wealth is rooted in King Leopold's exploitation of the Congo, as is a great deal of wealth in Belgium. Uh, someone did a survey a few years ago and found that nine of the 23 wealthiest families in Belgium uh, had Congo investments from colonial days that were part of their wealth. Uh, and this is a story in the other former colonial countries in Europe as well, in Britain, in France, in Germany, in Portugal. You'll find similar things. Now, has there been any movements or campaigns for reparations or, I guess, for some sort of uh, restorative justice, like the one we saw in Namibia when the Germans were finally forced to recognize? Yeah, there has been. It hasn't gone as far as what happened in Namibia, where the Germans actually did make a, a payment, I believe. Um, but because reparations is always a very tricky issue politically. Uh, people in the countries that are asked to pay reparations, whether it's the United States, where we're talking about slavery, or Europe, where we're talking about colonialism in Africa, uh, and in the United States, incidentally, we could also talk about American colonialism in places like the Philippines. Uh, people in those countries today always want to say, well, you know, we're not responsible for what our ancestors did. Um, but of course, our ancestors were responsible for the process of colonialism that made the world as unjust as it is today, with wealth as unequally distributed between countries. There is talk about this in Belgium. There's actually a commission set up by the Belgian parliament to examine what happened and consider the matter of reparations and so on. It hasn't gotten very far uh, and I suspect it won't, but that's just a speculation. You're listening to Upfront on The Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. We are chatting with Professor Adam Hochschild, author of the best-selling book, King Leopold's Ghost, a story of greed, terror, and heroism in colonial Africa. We're discussing the visit by Belgium's King Philippe to the DRC 
On his final day in the DRC, King Philippe paid a visit to the Hospital of Nobel Prize winner Dr. Dennis Mukwege. King Philippe stopped short of offering a formal apology, but he went further than his predecessors by acknowledging that the Belgian colonial regime under King Leopold had inflicted pain and humiliation on the people of Congo through a mixture of what he called an unequal relationship marked by paternalism, discrimination, and racism. And scholars say that even though King Leopold II was responsible for the death of millions of Congolese, the monarch's name and image was still celebrated in Belgium, even as evidence of his misdeeds had been documented over the decades. However, as Professor Adam Hochschild tells me, that changed in 2020. And that's when the protests sweeping the world after George Floyd's death in the U.S. galvanized the movement in Europe to confront Belgium's colonial past. One thing which did happen in Belgium, as it did in many countries around the world, the reverberations from the uh, televised murder of George Floyd uh, two and a half years ago really sent shockwaves around the world. It made people in many countries much more aware of the histories of racism that so many countries have. Uh, in the United States, we saw the, the taking down of statues of Confederate uh, generals and so forth across the American South. In Belgium, uh, statues of King Leopold came down. They had been regularly defaced for years where people would throw a bucket of red paint over a statue of the king or something. Now, a number of them have come down. Not all of them, but some of them have. Mm. Now, there were many European powers that colonized different parts of Africa and many stayed for a long time. But what would you say made Leopold stand out? Was it more because he literally owned that part of the Congo or how much suffering his rule brought to the Congolese? Well, I think you're right. The fact that one man owned all of this territory for 23 years was really unusual and different from the colonization that took place elsewhere in Africa. This made him a target of human rights campaigners who were outraged by the slave labor system he developed to exploit the ivory and wild rubber that grew in the Congo. However, when you look at what was happening in surrounding countries that had the same natural resource, and the big resource at this time, about 120 years ago, was wild rubber, because there was a tremendous rubber boom all over the world. They just invented the inflatable tire. They just invented the automobile. Everybody wanted rubber. Um, other colonies in Africa also had wild rubber. The French Congo, uh, today the Republic of Congo, across the river from Leopold's Congo. The Cameroons, which Germany owned. Uh, Northern Angola under the Portuguese. And seeing how much profit Leopold was making, they all used the same forced labor system that he developed. And in those colonies where we have accurate statistics, the most accurate are from the French Congo, the death rate was just as high as it was in Leopold's Congo. But there was this thing of Leopold's Congo being owned by one man. He was also one man who was a king of a rather small country. And so the human rights campaigners focused on him 
there weren't the political complications that you would get if you focused on a big country like France or Germany. So Leopold kind of became the butt of this uh, worldwide mm-hmm. human rights campaign, people largely ignoring that a similar system for exploiting uh, African labor was in use uh, in other colonies as well. Now, King Philip uh, is in the DRC, very well received by the authorities. Um, you know, many assumed or expected that he would formally apologize to the Congolese. Uh, well, why do you think he's hesitant to make that full apology? And, and what would the apology actually mean? Well, uh, I think that people make a distinction and you would have to actually talk to a lawyer to get the full meaning of this, I think. People make the distinction between uh, expressing an apology, which sort of is a statement that I or somebody I'm connected to actually did something wrong, and expressing regrets. And regret sort of makes it a little bit more distant, and I think doesn't raise so quickly the, the issue of reparations. Uh, and so all the statements that uh, King Philippe has made about what happened in the Congo, that British prime ministers and the Queen have made about British slavery and so forth, they're all very carefully phrased to not give the basis for a lawsuit uh, demanding reparations. No, of, uh, no, of, of, those of, lawsuits still will happen. <laughs> And, and of course, this, these, these monarchies or these institutions have enough wealth to actually pay up if, you know, they were ever forced to, uh, you know, to, to, to pay for, you know, reparations. I, I don't understand why they are never forthcoming about, you know, at least, you know, if not to repair an, a historical ill that is very much, you know, pervades the, you know, contemporaries, you know, society. Um, especially in, in the DRC right now, we, we know we can see that some of uh, the impact of uh, you know Leopold's rule in in the DRC uh, is still very much the reason why the Congo has not been able to get their act together up to now. Yeah, you know? Act, actual payment of reparations is fairly rare, but obviously I think we need much more of it. I think. I'm sure that King Philippe will announce that uh, his foundation is going to make uh, grants here and there, and he'll be praised for his generous philanthropy. He would much rather do that than say this is some small payment to make up in a very small way for the uh, millions of people who died under a forced labor regime. Mm -hmm. He's visiting, for instance, I think in the next few days, the... uh, hospital of Dr. Dennis Mukwege, the Nobel Prize winner in Bukavu in Eastern Congo, a remarkable institution. I was there myself three years ago. Uh, I'm sure he'll make some kind of grant to the hospital. So I think, you know, people in, in the former colonial countries would much rather see whatever payments they make seen as generous philanthropy rather than making up for Uh, wrongs done. Because when you really try to add up the bill for wrongs done, it's immense, and it's hard to calculate. Hard to quantify. Yeah, and it's huge. And it's not just the royal family, in the case of Belgium, that's at fault. A single Belgian company, the Société Générale de Belgique, 
uh, at one point controlled 70% of the economy of the colonial Congo. And that's wealth flowing back to Belgium. And of course, the United States has stood in a similar semi-colonial relationship to many countries in the Caribbean and Central America. Uh, we ruthlessly exploited the, uh, the Philippines during the time that they were an American colony. Uh, there are amends to be made there, too. Mm-hmm. What, what, what do you make of, uh, and, and this is my final question, because I know you, you're quite busy, but I wanted to ask you this. What, what do you make of the visits and the timing of the visits? You know, is this, it's very, it seems very well orchestrated. He came with uh, an artifact that he was returning. He's uh, visiting, yeah. you know, Dr. McQuaig's uh, clinic. He's making, he's doing the right things. But why now? What, what, what is this for? What is the purpose of this? Uh I don't know what the timing is for why it's being done right now. Uh, but uh, I, I mean, the, the six on the 50th anniversary of independence, uh, Philippe's father, King Albert II, also visited Congo. It was very tricky at the time, I remember. Uh, it was very tricky was he going to say anything about Belgium's past there? Was he going to say anything about imprisoned Congolese human rights activists? Uh, what should he say about this? And finally, the decision was made that he should say nothing in public. So he visited for four days, said absolutely nothing in public, looked at buildings, bowed, smiled, had his picture taken, and so forth, uh, while saying nothing. The interesting thing about that visit was, though, to me, that a million people turned out to see him in the streets of Kinshasa. Uh, I think royalty has an allure all over the world, uh, and that for Congolese, it may have a special allure because the country has had such uh, terrible troubles over the 60 years of its independence, ruthless exploitation by a series of corrupt uh, rulers, uh, terrible wars in the eastern part of the country and some other parts as well, that actually so many Congolese on a sort of per capita income basis are worse off today than they were at the end of Belgian rule, uh, which is a terrible tragedy, but it may um, it may account for some of the enthusiasm with which the king is being welcomed and the hope that any and optimism and the optimism that something better will come out of this. Yeah. Yeah. So that's tragic to me. That was Professor Adam Hochschild. He's the author of the best-selling book, King Leopold's Ghost, a story of greed, terror, and heroism in colonial Africa. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. My name is Mutavali Apple, and I'm a teacher by profession. So COVID financially has affected we teachers because right now we are not paid since February. And the rent, we are supposed to pay the rent, which is rising now. It's now like four months. Yes, my name is uh, Okelo Rex. I'm a photographer. I think economically it has impacted me badly. Life has not been easy. Uh, we have been surviving on something very little at home there. Voice of America. 
And let's go to West Africa in Nigeria, where students are finding ways to stay busy and engaged as lecturers continue their strike. The lecturers say the federal government has failed to address issues raised by the Academic Staff Union of Universities, ASUU. The organization is calling for the implementation of a 2009 agreement it entered with the Nigerian government. The striking lecturers say the agreement concluded last year covers a range of issues around funding, welfare and independence of public universities, especially at state levels. But as lecturers stay away from the classrooms, how are students spending their time? Samuel Okocha, our correspondent in Lagos, Nigeria, spoke to some of the students and has this story. For me, I've realized that I should not depend on general institutions to be capable. Omar Dain Timita is in his final year as a mechanical engineering student at the University of Lagos. His graduation has been delayed due to strikes by university lecturers, but he says he sees a bright side. I realized that I, I cannot be defined by just a degree. So it's who, am I, who I am after all that that I've been trying to work on and trying to build. You know, self-discipline, time management. It's actually harder to manage your time when you have a lot of it. So those are the things that, for me, have been the biggest takeaways, just developing myself as a person. For Timitayo, part of developing himself means looking beyond his degree program in engineering to embracing new career path in tech. I, okay, I always wanted to do mechanical engineering because I've been interested in engineering. So uh, for me, I plan to go into um, either contracting, which is like general engineering or instrumentation, or CFD simulation, which is what I do currently. But during this strike period, I've tried to lean more into tech. Like I mentioned, I'm, I've been taking um, courses on front-end and back-end development. Because, you know, I've realized that in as much as you have a passion for something, you also have to be marketable. And uh, I realized that uh, developers are in high demand currently. And it's also an option that allows one to work and earn remotely. So in some sense, I can isolate myself from the situation in the country, you know, and work remotely. So that's the new purpose that I guess that I've gotten in this, uh, in this time period so pivoting into tech and not just engineering. Temitai is not the only student embracing tech as a career path. Some students are launching new businesses around tech. Here on campus at the University of Lagos, Michael Ojo, a final year chemical engineering student, is one of them. Together with his friends, he launched an education tech agency, Octave Incorporation, teaching digital skills to students and professionals. His one-year-old agency is currently running a boot camp for students, and he says the university's lecturer strike has made him focus more on his business. Currently, in fact, we have over, I think, 65 students taking the training currently. In different skills, we are thinking around about eight, eight skills. You know, we are even we are doing robotics, uh, doing uh, data science and machine learning, UI/UX. What is going on there? UI/UX. We have you know website development and data analytics. You know, which is good for business. Michael says most of his students are also students, but with the current lecturer strike, he has been able to use his free time to scale his business with more outreach. Really, if there was no strike. 
we, we may not have even held this training. You know, we were thinking of having it after exams. But now that the strike kept on lingering, we're like, okay, let's have it now, because we don't know when the strike will end. And as it is now, the current news is that they've extended the strike to three months again. So the strike has really helped us to, you know, in fact, we've scaled the business a little bit higher, you know, trying to, we don't just do this training. Like I said, we do services too. So we go to companies out there, we give business consultancy for data analysis, we help with web development, help with um, graphics and the rest. So the mission again is to promote and um, advance digitization in Nigeria. So I do that in several ways, right? So, and this strike has given us that time. Outside the University of Lagos, students from other Nigerian universities are sharing their stories of enterprise and development. Faith Bello is in her first year as a student of communications and language arts at the University of Ibadan. But with lecturers on strike for more than three months running, she traveled to Lagos to run a short private program in radio broadcasting. As an intermediate student, I'm actually still learning. I'm almost done with my course. And what I expect to take out is a lot because the broadcast industry has a lot to do with many things. And you're like, you can apply it in your day-to-day activity. Faith is one of many Nigerian students trying to make the most of the time on their hands as lecturers disengage from teaching to press home demands for better funding for public universities. But students like Faith say the prolonged strike has become a common feature of federal public universities. My age rate is already in 300 level in private schools and state schools, so I feel really bad. I, guess I tell people that my parents went to federal schools and they enjoyed it. Even if they had little strike, they still got what the best of the best was. Now, why are we getting the best of the best in private schools instead of the same federal schools where you have the best lecturers, the best professors, where you have them in abundance? Lecturers recently extended their three-month warning strike for another three months. The continuous strikes have forced students to spend more time than they bargained for for their academic programs. But for the Academic Staff Union of Universities, ASU, the strikes have become inevitable. Dr. Dele Ashiro leads the University of Lagos chapter of ASU. He says the strikes have become necessary as part of the struggle to keep public universities alive in Nigeria. Look at this building. It's a product of ASU's struggle. Federal government's assessment project. 2013, we went on strike. That students who graduated here 10 years ago were in a classroom over there, only about 30 of them. Today, there are about 150. They are still using that classroom. It was part of our compelling government that brought about this structure. The same thing this one. If you go around campus, you see tech fund building, needs assessment. These are byproducts of our struggle. Even when you enter the library, the best journals, they are supplied by tech fund. The teaching equipments, the aids, supplied by tech fund. These are efforts to make our universities globally competitive. And they are paying off. So, the other option is to do nothing and undertake the death of public universities in Nigeria. Meanwhile, as lecturers and the government lock horns over the soul of Nigeria's public universities, students like Faith are trying to make the most of the situation. 
I've been volunteering for almost a year now, and it has been very, very nice for me. And when school is on, I go back to school. When ASU is on strike, I go back to my volunteering. Same with most people. Some of my friends are fashion designers. Some of them have even forgotten about school now. Samuel Okocha for VOA News in Lagos, Nigeria. And that's it for this edition of Upfront on the Voice of America. My name is Jackson Vongani. Thank you to all our guests and to all of you, our listeners, whether you tune in online or on radio, on FM or shortwave. Remember to connect with us on all social media platforms. We are at VOA Africa on Instagram, on Facebook, on YouTube. We are also on Twitter. My personal account is Upfront Africa. I'll catch you next time right here. Stay well, stay healthy. Goodbye, Africa. Hello, this is Heather Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Like to stay on top of new music trends, breakout artists, new releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station, Saturdays and Sundays at 1500 and 2000 